Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com slash listener and get started. You're listening to The Experiment. I'm Julia Longoria. This is the third course of a three-course spam feast. So if you haven't already, go back and listen to the first two. At the start of our journey, producer Gabrielle Burbet set out to solve a family mystery and popped open a Pandora's can. Spam, we learned, was an invention of the Great Depression, a reliable source of protein in hard times. Then... During World War II, spam traveled overseas in the food rations of American GIs, where it was many soldiers' dying meal. But in the Pacific Islands where those GIs landed, spam became a symbol of freedom, an emblem of the American dream. Then, 40 years later, spam sparked a bitter strike that went on to tear its hometown apart. Some people lost their jobs. Others lost their families. Everyone lost a way of life. The worker lost in the 80s. They lost. For the strikers, spam became a painful reminder of a time when their idea of the American dream was lost. So... We wondered, after the strike ended, what became of the workers at the plant where Spam is made? To answer this, we turn to a time around 2006, when the Spam saga takes another turn. Where does the story of this whole thing start for you? Honestly, the first thing that it's literature that comes to my head what is at us? <laughs> What's afoot? <laughs> What's afoot? Where is what, wait, what is what is what at is that us from? from? Yeah. Well, the afoot comes from Sherlock Holmes, but it was a mystery, so it, that's what came to mind. We begin with a detective of sorts. My name is Carolee Dalgo. I work at Austin Medical Center. It's now Mayo Clinic Health System. I'm a staff interpreter liaison. Carol translates for doctors and patients at a medical clinic in Austin, Minnesota, Spamtown, USA. Patients speak Spanish primarily. You're greeted at the desk, you check in. The nurse takes you back, asks some preliminary question, takes your vital signs. And one day, like any other day, the gentleman came in. Carol greeted a patient who was there to see one of the doctors. As the provider does their interview, the person would answer, I would interpret, and it goes back and forth like that. The man began to describe his symptoms. I'm weak fatigued and tingly and I don't have energy. I want to go to work. I can't work. I can't get up the stairs at work. I can't hold my equipment at work. It was unclear what was causing this tingly sensation. When the appointment was over, the patient left and Carol went on with her day. About four months passed and 
another patient came in. The second one was a younger gentleman who months ago had been playing basketball and he was actually wheelchair bound. It was weakness and tingling and things I could do, I can't do. And then after that, another patient came in. The third one was this gal. This patient was someone Carol had translated for many times before. She was usually really upbeat, really bubbly, very happy. Hey, Carol. Hi, how are you? I had seen her two months prior. She had been healthy the last time Carol saw her. But this time was very different. I saw her in the ER, and she came in in a wheelchair. She could hardly get out of it. She needed assistance to get up on the exam table. She was going to sign an authorization and couldn't hold the pen. This patient turned to her and said, You saw me. I could walk two months ago. I was like, yeah, you could. It was drastic, the change. It was significant. She she was exhausted. She was worn out. She said, everything tingles. I can't make it stop. I was like, wait, what? My heart dropped. Didn't I just say this? Oh, no, that was the other patient. But I'm just like, oh, no, 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 no. This isn't happening. I was able to just say, hey, you know, something's sticking out to me about your symptoms. Carol began to do some sleuthing. I like seeing how things relate and seeing how things repeat. I'm a big pattern person, so I was trying to draw a web around each day. Like I'd put a person in the middle and then I'd just, you know, like, brainstorm on paper, basically. Can I ask you more about anything you've done different lately or where do you work? And she found out that all these patients with the same symptoms, coming from different departments across the hospital, from different doctors, they did have one thing in common. It turned out that the answer that was repeating was it was always the same department in the same position. They worked in the same meatpacking plant the plant where pigs are slaughtered for spam. I thought, okay, there is a link. What happened here? (laughs) This week, the final installment in the spam saga. Decades after a bitter strike tore Spamtown USA apart, and helped to turn a national tide against workers in the 1980s, American meatpacking continued to change. In Austin, Minnesota, a new workforce came to town and put the ideals that the workers had been fighting for to a test. I'm Julia Longoria. I'm Gabrielle Burbet. This is The Experiment, a show about our unfinished country. Throughout our time reporting in Austin, Minnesota, we wondered who are the workers who make spam today? And we saw clues all over town. We just walked out of this bar, Cuatro Copas, and directly across from it, there's the Spam Museum. Across the street from where we toured the Spam Museum, a bar is full of Central Americans dancing cumbia. And then... We're walking into the Mexican grocery store. 
across from the labor center. Directly across the street from the 1980s strike headquarters. We've had like 20 tacos since we've been here. (laughs) Was a delicious taco stand. Cheese to make uh, quesadillas. We have uh, chorizo, that way you can make chorizo con huevos. A lot has changed in Austin since the 80s. Some of that has to do with what happened in the meatpacking industry. In the 80s, larger meatpacking plants started buying out smaller ones in a wave of consolidation. Unions crumbled, wages dropped. But some of the change is unique to Austin. When the Hormel strike ended in 1986, only about a third of those strikers came back to work in the plant. Permanent replacement workers came in to fill empty spots. And then, the very next year, Hormel announced some big news. They would no longer slaughter pigs that went into their products like Spam. Instead, that would be done by a new and separate company called Quality Pork Processors, or QPP. But here's the thing. The QPP plant wasn't in another town or even in another part of Austin. QPP workers worked in the same Hormel facility, using the same equipment. A journalist, Ted Genoways, wrote a whole book about this, and he reported that a wall was physically installed inside the plant to separate people in QPP slaughter from those in Hormel's packaging. Even though QPP was only slaughtering pigs for Hormel, the key difference was that QPP paid workers less than Hormel's union-negotiated rate. Labor leadership told us that many Austin locals refused QPP's lower-paying jobs at the new plant, so QPP turned to another workforce to take the lower-wage positions. They're very popular, and here's what they're making, the tamales, they're making everything fresh. We just got here from Mexico. In 2010, up to 90% of QPP workers were Latino, according to union officials. Across the country, the meatpacking workforce has only become more Hispanic. Whatever you want from the menu, uh, just let me know. In the taco shop, we were greeted by a man named Miguel Garate. He's friends with the owners. And whenever we asked anyone about the Latino population in Austin, everyone invariably said, you gotta talk to Miguel. People say that about me. What do they say? You know, Miguel is a Pied Piper. People follow him. The Pied Piper, or unofficial liaison, of the Latino community here. What is the story of you deciding to come here? What, uh, where does it start? I was born in Tampico, Tamaulipas, Mexico. Miguel grew up in a border town across from Brownsville, Texas. I had the best childhood because I was very popular in my neighborhood. It seems like his Pied Piper tendencies started early. In my block, we're the only ones that have a TV. And I used to have all my friends come into my house. And I used to charge them 20 cents <laughs> to come into my house. And my mom's and then my sister, they make popcorn. I remember we watched Tarzan, uh, Gunsmoke. Uh, I, would, I wish I can go back to those days. And as an adult, he had a good life. A wife, a daughter, a four-year degree, and a job in accounting. But then, in his 30s... My plan was to get out. I need to get out because, for me, I was burning from inside. And I, need, I need some fresh air. His marriage began to fall apart, and he was looking to start over. And then, almost on a whim... I said, well, I'm going to go to, like, a job fair. He went to a big office building where there were tables set up. Recruiting people to, 
go work in the fields, work in production. And looking at the sea of tables, he made direct eye contact with one recruiter. And this lady said, are you looking for a job? And I stopped in that table and... Why? Because yeah. of her. Because her. Um, her hair was brown, short. Most that I remember, her green, green eyes. Very, like, emerald color. Elizabeth Taylor's eyes. Very powerful eyes. And she said, well, we're from Austin, Minnesota. We are a production company, and we do packaging, and we're looking for people like you. And I go, really? What do you mean like me? You know, they really speak the language and then bilingual. They were looking for people who could speak both English and Spanish to communicate with Spanish-speaking workers. I go, I'm not really bilingual. You know, I'm not a professional bilingual or professional interpreter. And she said, well, why don't you try? You want to apply? Sure, why not? Did you know that the company that you would be working for made spam? Never. They told me uh, it's a production, and they do uh, hams and this and that. But they never mentioned me about killing pigs. And I went home, and I remember after a couple of weeks or maybe a month, I call and then go, the offer is still going? Yeah, are you coming? Yeah, I'm in my way. Miguel said a tearful goodbye to his family, packed up his car, and started driving toward his North Star. Those Elizabeth Taylor eyes in Austin, Minnesota. I listened to my radio. Naturally, he cranked up the music. Whatever state you, you're going through, you're trying to look for the Spanish music. And as soon as you pass Texas, it's another station. And then to Oklahoma, it's another station. Spanish music in every state. Eventually, he started to see signs. Austin, seven exits. And you go, okay, seven exits. Five, four, three, and you find the main road. And you get up and you go like, wow, what is this? And you go, what is this? What did you see? What did I, you see? I go like uh, houses, but no people. You know what I mean? This is a ghost town. This is like very quiet, you know. Where is everybody, you know? But my life changed after my first day of work. Early the next morning, Miguel drove through the empty streets of Austin for his first day at QPP. The parking lot was full of cars. I said, no wonder they're all here, you know? I know where the people are. I go, this is where they are. I walk in and everybody was waiting for the orientation. We all were white with boots and helmets and like a very professional people. All right, we went down and was like, whoa, pigs everywhere. Michael, what is this? Careful. I never in my life see all this many pigs hanging from the ceiling and then moving and then blood in the floor. That was kind of like a not a scary, but, you know, surprise. See all this big thing in the ceiling. Of course, I remember our coat got bloody, but it's because they were leaking, you know? And that was like uh, pigs on the floor, and then you have someone picking it up with a little four-wheel car, push them in and take it back to the rail. And I heard people saying, hey, welcome, you comers, and the Spanish and in English, and they were going, yeah, woo-hoo. I was like, oh, okay, thank you. And I can see 
90% that were Latinos. I go, oh my God, there's people here that they know maybe my language. Where are you from? Where are you from? Oh, I'm from McAllen. I'm from here. I'm from there. ¿De dónde son? México. El estado de Coahuila. De México. Vengo de I was born in Mexico, north of Mexico. My uncle is also from Mexico too. A lot of Hispanics from Mexico, especially from Oaxaca. They bring their family. First one makes the adventure. Then this one calls his cousin, and this cousin another cousin, and when you ended up, you're having tons of people from the same villages. Estaba lleno aquí de hispanos. We talked to about a dozen people who made the journey, like Miguel, from Mexico to Austin. We took the trip, and I said, wow, what a cute town. It looks like a postcard. Everything was green. The houses looked great, and the cars were new, and people smiled at you. Even the garbage looked nice. And since he arrived, the Latino community has only grown. Right now we are at Queen of Angels Church in Austin, Minnesota. A church in town that used to serve the white Catholic community in the 80s now serves the Latino community here. I go to the Bible study and I walk in, it's like a hundred kids. I go, where is all this coming from? But they're here. When I moved here in 1997, that was like 80% that were men, you know? And then over the years, they start bringing their wives. And then the kids, now they bring the grandma, grandpa, or an aunt or someone to help. QPP has become a starting place for a new life. Miguel started there, worked his way up. He actually ended up recruiting for QPP. And now he works at the community college. That lady who first recruited him? We become good friends, one to another. We just start dating, and then now I have five grandkids. They've been together for over two decades. And we heard similar stories of success all over town. My first job, it was interpreting every Monday for Hormel. An interpreter who ended up starting his own driving business to help newcomers get acquainted to Austin. Do your parents own this store? Yeah, they do. Oh. The owner of that taco shop we loved. The parents are my friends, like family to me. And started at QPP. They have a beautiful home in Morelos. Now they own a vacation home in Mexico. It's a beautiful home. They send me pictures and I go, I will send you a picture next week from Playa del Carmen and see if we're going to get you. I know, lucky him, right? He should take all of us. He should take all of us there. We came to Austin, Minnesota 40 years after a strike divided families here and tore the town apart. We wanted to know what became of the ideas the strikers were fighting for, their dignity, a comfortable way of life for their families. What do you think is the legacy of the strike? What I understand sometimes for something bad, always something good come up. Maybe the strike that was mean to happen because they bring all these new people to town. It seemed like the idea of the American dream didn't die here after the strike. It was just passed on to a new group of people. I'm very happy the strike happened because they bring a lot of new people to this new uh, job force. And then uh, they had all these people from all over. And then they're here. They've been here for 20-something years. 
they buy houses, cars, and I, I think the strike brings something good, new, more people to our community. But for all the stories of finding success and prosperity in Austin, there was a darker story we'd heard about. When the illness was going on in the plant, that's one thing that people don't, don't, don't want to talk too much. A story about an illness that had spread among workers at the plant. Do you think that you'd be able to put me in contact with any of the people that have worked at the plant at this time? Like When we tried to track down people who may know more about what happened... I don't remember seeing them for the last years. I don't remember. We kept hitting dead ends. I can ask him, but... But no, I don't know if you would want to do that or not. I, I don't remember the name in uh, a long time ago. So we asked Miguel about it. We had read about some kind of problem at the plant. When was the first time that you heard about some kind of disease? Or that disease, uh, it came out to surprise to our community. And that year, I remember that was something that you, you were afraid that you had that with you. What were people calling it? <laughs> El dengue del marrano. The pig disease. I know a person that got sick with that disease, but what it is, I don't know. I asked him to talk to you guys. Let me yeah. see if she answered, okay? Okay. <laughs> That's after the break. Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com slash listener and get started. I'm Julia Longoria, this is The Experiment, and we're back to the story of a medical mystery that began to unfold among workers at quality pork processors. After Miguel introduced us to the worker that he knew who got the disease, we asked this man if he could meet us at our hotel. This is better. Brasiliano's wife came with him too, but didn't want to be identified. But when I asked them both how they first met, <laughs> she opened up a bit. They met at work, 
at a bodega in their hometown of Coahuila in Mexico. They were instantly attracted to each other. She was beautiful. And he was serious and handsome. She liked the way he looked at her. And within six months of meeting, they were married. They just celebrated their 38th anniversary. Whenever they went to a party, they were that couple. The dance floor pioneers. And their first child, out of five, was born in Mexico in 1984. Hello. Hello. Hi, is this Luis? His name is Luis. He lives in New York City now. Are you the oldest? I am. I'm the oldest child, too. So it's got me. Oldest children for the win. (laughs) Um, And where were you born? In the city of Monclova in northern Mexico. I grew up without indoor plumbing, uh, hated going outside <laughs> uh, to the outhouse. I, I don't want to say we lived in abject poverty, but we were, we were very poor. And so the American dream was the, the pull factor. Me vine solo. Dos de enero del 90. My father swam the, the Rio Grande. Presiliano swam across the border alone, without his family, in the winter of 1990. He ended up in Austin, where an aunt had been living, and his family followed him a few months later. It was exciting. For me, as a child, uh, coming, coming here, it was exciting, especially when, you know, when it started snowing and the cars were new and people smiled at you. And, and of course, everyone was white. Every single person. The Valle family was part of the first wave of Mexican families to come to Austin after the 1986 strike. Once I got over my excitement, it was it was pretty lonely from being surrounded by hundreds of, of relatives to just essentially being my parents and my brother and me. So it was just, yeah, it was um, it was just essentially me hanging out with my mom <laughs> every Saturday morning with with my mother. She wake up early and wake us all up. And we were, you know, she would uh, put the music up really loud and play all these old Spanish Power ballads. <laughs> <laughs> like which one? No Tengo Dinero was, was a, uh, a favorite of hers. No Tengo Dinero? No Tengo Dinero, yeah. It's a song about not having any money to give to your loved one. Probably because we grew up poor, and so I get this emblematic of really her relationship with my father. But over time, Brasiliano did have money. After working a few jobs around Minnesota, he landed a job at QPP. Y me gustó el trabajo. Me gustó. He says he really liked the work. Y el olor. My dad would smell every time he came home. Even though he smelled bad. Feísimo. <laughs> because he worked in slaughter. Matanza. Que hay que saber hacer los cortes bien. You had to know how to do the cuts well without hurting yourself. My dad was only making a little over $12 an hour. It was physically demanding, but with that salary, he took care of five kids and, and a wife. We were comfortable. Like it was, it was understood. Dad has a really hard job, but that job allows us to have insurance, to put food on the table, to have some gifts during birthdays and, and Christmas. And so that was our life for many years. 
le gustó el trabajo? Sí. ¿Algo cambió en, en algún momento? No, todo estuvo muy bien. Everything was great, Brasiliano says. Hasta el día del problema ese de la bacteria. 2007. 2007. Until 2007, 13 years later, when something strange started happening. And we would talk once a week, you know, phone conversations. But then Luis was away at college. Empecé yo a sentir dolores en los pies. He would say that the soles of his feet felt like they were burning. Que se me calentaban. Y luego se me dormían. And then that burning sensation would move up to his, his knees. Me cansaba mucho caminar. He had difficulty walking. No podía usar zapatos. Me iba en, en chancla, en sandalias. He could only wear soft-soled shoes, like flip-flops. Todo me molestaba. And outrunning errands. He just run out of steam and need to sit down. He'd wake up in the middle of the night with pain. His wife said his calves would tense up. It felt like there were snakes or something moving inside. And it, you know, it, it just stayed. Maybe he was just getting old. <laughs> But he was still in his 40s at that time. By then, he'd been working at the plant for 13 years. Maybe that's what it was. But it was just the wear and tear of doing that kind of job. He tried any remedy he could think of. Every type of ointment. Oh my gosh, did he put Vicks vapor up? <laughs> oh, of course, yeah, of course. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a staple in, in <laughs> Latino culture. You put vapor rub on, on everything. But he would not go to the doctor. Tengo miedo. Tiene miedo. Tiene miedo al hospital. He's scared of needles. But his wife insisted and got him an appointment at Austin Medical Center where they were greeted by the interpreter. Carol Hidalgo. They all came in with, I'm weak. The pattern person. I, I can't do these things. I don't have energy. I want to go to work. I can't work. I can't get up the stairs at work. I can't hold my equipment at work. It just was on me like that. I got to say something. I have to say something. Finally, Carol did do something about it. I went to the providers who worked ER and cardiology. She told the doctors about this strange pattern she was seeing in their patients across the hospital. There did seem to be a definite pattern that it was occurring. Dr. James Dick and the other doctors all had the same question. What do they have in common? Many of these workers were Spanish-speaking. They all worked at quality pork products in Austin, Minnesota. And so we then took this information and went to the Minnesota Department of Health and reported it to them. They went to state epidemiologist Dr. Ruth Linfield. We didn't know for sure whether it was an infection or if it was an exposure to a toxin. So I did feel pressure to set up a visit with the plant as soon as we could. And she went straight to the QPP plant to investigate. We followed the swine along. You see the, the pigs hanging and they go to different stations. One specific station caught her eye. And just a heads up, the next description is pretty graphic. Where people are removing pieces of meat from the head. Era la que le sacaba los, los sesos de la cabeza. Vea. 
Prisciliano worked in this area. The head table. As you approached, you could see bits of the swine present on people's gowns, you know, what they were wearing, their protective garb, and that there also were pieces in the air. The bits of matter floating in the air? Was bits of brain. Pig brain. And they would put a tube through the swine skull. A machine would release a burst of pressurized air into the skull of the pig through a tube to liquefy the brain and push it out. And so the brain then would get somewhat liquefied and sucked into this hole that would then go into a bucket. There was material that was in the air and on people. The closer you were to that device, the more likely you were to have become ill. Do you remember what you were wearing? The blanco. I don't think they were wearing masks. Some of them did not have protective sleeves. Without knowing it, workers near the pig brain machine seemed to be breathing in the blown brain matter. So these foreign proteins are coming in through your lungs, through your mucous membranes. And the problem is those pig proteins and human proteins look very similar. So when pig brain matter entered the workers' bodies, the workers' antibodies began to attack the pig brain as a foreign invader. But because pig and human proteins have a really similar structure, the workers' bodies also started attacking their own nerves. The workers were having an autoimmune response, which is when a body, in trying to protect itself, ends up self-destructing. We went to QPP for comment, and they didn't answer a lot of our questions. But they did say they reached out to the Minnesota Department of Health when workers got sick. And they told us that once they learned the disease was linked to the machine, the company stopped using it immediately. And they haven't used it since. But there was still one question. The company had been harvesting brains this way periodically for around a decade. So why were workers getting sick now? That was, uh, we, we had heard that the line speed had, had gone up. One of the doctors told the press that an increase in line speed was their best guess of why workers were getting sick now. Brasiliano told us that while he worked at QPP, he noticed the line getting much faster. The journalist Ted Genoways reported that over the decade that Brasiliano was at QPP, the line got 50% faster, from 900 pig heads per hour to 1,350 heads an hour. That may make it a little harder to have full control over where the brain is going. You know, there could be more spillage, things speed up, and you don't have enough time to get it exactly where you want it. Line speed 
you might remember, was one of the key complaints in the 1980s Hormel strike. Chain speeds were incredibly fast. We were working faster and harder, and more people were getting injured. Workers who had once had a lot of control over the pacing of their work were now being forced to work at a breakneck speed. My dad and other affected colleagues were already putting two and two together because, you know, they were seeing each other at the doctors. Todos los que estamos enfermos trabajamos aquí, que éramos como unos 19, más o menos. There's no way for us to know just how many people got sick. The Minnesota Department of Health cites 15, a different medical journal cites 21. Y ustedes no se pertenecieron a una unión, a un, al union. Sí. Nosotros fuimos a la unión. They brought it up to the union. No, que ellos no, ellos no podían... The union is, is not very strong anymore since the strike. In the 80s, the, the union really has become pretty powerless. They don't have the same representation and power that they used to. La Unión no podía meterse en ese problema. The union told Presiliano they couldn't get involved. Dijo, no, yo pensé que tenías papeles. No, no tengo. Because of his legal status. At that time, Presiliano was among several undocumented workers who got sick. Dijo que por eso no quisieron meterse. When asked about this, the union president at the time, Rich Morgan, told us that he didn't specifically remember Presiliano, but that the union did take action to help get sick workers compensated. He added that the union helps workers, regardless of their immigration status. As someone who's undocumented, you try to alleviate uh, certain circumstances that are you know, under your control. Not very many things are. Um, but the rest, you try to continue working. I mean, it's, we came here to work. Uh, and for you kids, study. If you're not going to study, you're going to work. But we came here, you know, we left everything we had ever known. We came to this country and we came to work to provide a better life. And you don't complain. My parents realized that they needed to start speaking up. ¿Qué decidieron hacer? Pues hicimos, hicimos varias, varias reuniones. Presiliano decided to fight back. He started attending organized meetings with the other sick workers. They got a local Latino advocacy group involved. Even as an undocumented person, Presiliano started talking to the press about his story. Una entrevista aquí. You can see his image in the press. They hired a lawyer to try and get workers' compensation. Presiliano says, just like the union, when the lawyer found out he was undocumented, he encouraged him to back down. Presiliano said, this isn't an immigration issue. This is a work issue. I'm sick. He says the company had offered him and the other workers a settlement. By this point, he says, many of the workers were sick, they were scared, and they were tired. He says each of the other workers signed the settlement. Presiliano held out for three years, 
hoping to get the full workers' comp he felt he was due. But eventually, he signed too. When we asked QPP about this, they didn't respond directly, but they said that all confirmed cases of the disease were paid workers' comp. ¿Y qué pasó después? 2009. They fired him because he was undocumented. In 2009, Brasiliano says the company let him go, saying it was because he was undocumented. QPP told us that once they find out a worker is undocumented, they have no other choice but to fire them. At that point, Brasiliano had been working at the company undocumented since 1994. <laughs> he jokes he was one of the first to be let go for being undocumented because he was being a loudmouth talking to the press about his story. <laughs> He's always been very fair and has always been against any kind of injustice. But that, that situation really, really forced him to come out of his shell and become an active voice in, in, in the community, despite the fact that the consequences were that it affected us economically. Um, I hope that if I ever have to make that decision, then I would also follow his example, as challenging as that would be. I asked Brasiliano where that fight in him came from. He said he's always had it. He says he doesn't say much, but he reads. He watches documentaries on YouTube. After QPP removed the brain machine, no more workers reported getting sick. Many of those who did get sick improved over time, Brasiliano says he still feels the pain in his feet. It still hasn't gone away. You get used to it, he says. In many ways... The -the behind-the-scenes story of how spam is made is the story of American meatpacking. A story of unions losing ground in the 80s, of plants shuttering, meatpacking wages falling, and production lines speeding up. Today in meatpacking, more than half of workers in those lower-paying, faster jobs are immigrants. QPP told us that today, about a third of their workers are Hispanic. Just a few months ago, the USDA announced a plan to let some meatpacking plants try out even faster line speeds than before. And this story isn't limited to meatpacking. Across U.S. manufacturing, fewer workers belong to unions and wages have stagnated. But here's where the story of spam is different than the national meatpacking story. In the 1980s, the strikers at the Hormel plant fought back against a movement crushing American workers and fought for their families. Those workers lost, but the ideas they fought for never really died in Austin or in the workers there, 
decades later. If you had to distill it to, like, the ideals, what do you think your dad was fighting for? Justice, fairness, accountability. I think it was, it was triggering for him coming from a country that is very corrupt, uh, where there is very little accountability on corporations and the government. Do you think that he um, expects more of the U.S.? Yes. Do you? I think we can do better. Yeah, I think we can do better. This, this, uh, um, yeah, I have to in my line of work. <laughs> I am a trained epidemiologist and biostatistician, um, and I work for the New York City Health Department. Actually, the last five years, I've been working in immigrant health policy. I have to believe that you know, we as a society can, can, can do better. Do you think that everything that happened to your dad, the disease and his fight, do you think it affected what you chose as your line of work? I think actually the, the connection is there. Yeah, the bringing justice into these communities, moving away from the injustice and errors of the past in public health and the medical field where we've blamed these populations for, you know, for their bad health and uh, health outcomes without really, really looking and studying into the actual possible effects of what is causing them, you know, uh, high unemployment, it's racism, it's uh, lack of housing, lack of uh, access to, to care. We didn't have a voice. I didn't have a voice for many years. It took me a while to get my voice. <laughs> my parents are still, you know, trying to get their voice back. Before we left Austin, we had a final question for Presiliano. Why did you stay? Sí, porque porque sé que quedó aquí. Yo. Sí. Pues no, me gustó aquí. He says he likes it here. Me gustó aquí, ya no quise volver. He's not going anywhere. Cool. Yo creo que ya. Muchas gracias. And as we were packing up. De nada. Que sea, qué bueno que se acordaron de nosotros. He said, "How nice that you remembered us." Cooked in a hot frying pan.
This episode was produced by Gabriel Berbe and Julia Longoria. Editing by Kelly Prime, Emily Botin, and Catherine Wells. With help from Scott Stossel. Special thanks to Alina Kultman. Fact-checked by Will Gordon. Sound designed by David Herman. And engineering by Joe Plord. Music by Tasty Morsels and Alexander Oberington. Our team also includes Peter Bresnan, Tracy Hunt, Natalia Ramirez, and me, Salman Ahad Khan. This episode is the final installment of our three-part series, Spam, How the American Dream Got Canned. And if you enjoyed, please take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The experiment is a co-production of The Atlantic and WNYC Studios. Thank you for listening. We chop and we slice and combine it with rice and grind it whenever we can. <laughs> so that's... Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Ben Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com slash listener and get started.